You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. I've been introduced to you, uh, Ben Nash. He'll introduce himself, but Ben's been a part of our preaching cohort this spring in preparation for preaching through the Psalms this summer. So Ben's going to open Psalm 45 uh, for us this morning, uh, gloriously lifting our heads to the beauty of King Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for Ben and pray for our time. Would you join me? Father, we thank you for your kindness today, uh, that in all, uh, in all the things that are placed before us, we know that you are at work for your glory and for our good. And so we're grateful for this time this morning. We pray that your spirit that's been at work in Ben in preparation would be at work in our hearts and readying us to hear your word, that you'd lift our eyes and then give us eyes to see and gaze upon and marvel in and rest in the beauty of our King Jesus this morning. And so uh, give us what we need and use your servant uh, to build up and equip and encourage your people. Uh, we love you, Jesus. Be honored and glorified by all that mm. continues to take place here this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Jake. Good morning. Morning. Do you guys remember your favorite wedding you've been to? Uh, hopefully, for many of you, it's your own. Today, I want to invite you to an even better and more beautiful wedding. Imagine for a moment a king arriving from multiple palaces, a place of light, beauty, and glory, unlike anything you have seen before. The king is resplendent with glory, brilliant light, brighter than the sun, a man full of joy, yet scars can be seen on his body. He speaks, and you tremble. Your heart burns within you. On the other side, you see a bride, more gorgeous than ever, Spotless, pure, holy. Her wedding dress is not white. It's of the finest gold. And you can see inexpressible joy in her smile. So today I have the weighty and wonderful privilege of revealing to you one of the most beautiful scenes in Scripture, the wedding of Jesus. Now many of you might think, wait, Jesus didn't get married. And you're correct. But one day... He will be married to his beautiful bride, the church. If you didn't know, Psalm 45 shows us this glorious picture of King Jesus' wedding. It actually sounds too good to be true, but it actually is that good. And I want to show you some amazing things we can see in the character and heart of Jesus, as well as his bride, the church. Psalm 45 reads like a fairy tale, and it is a true fairy tale. Scripture is about slaying the dragon and getting the girl. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And one day, there will be a glorious marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. So Psalm 45 takes us there, and we get to read about the king and queen. But before we go, uh, go there, let me introduce myself in case you don't know me. Uh, my name is Ben Nash. I've been a part of River City since about three weeks after its birth. Uh, and I've seen a lot of change and we've gone through a lot of hardships along the way. But Jesus has been faithful. He is always good. And his church is growing. What excites me about River City right now is that I've seen a lot of solid men 
that are coming into leadership that know the word of God, love Jesus, and have a heart for the church and those who don't know Jesus. So this is a wonderful place to grow and to be in your walk with the Lord. Yes, we are full of many flaws, but Jesus sees a spotless bride because of his righteousness. I have a wonderful wife, Annie, and three children who are our joy. Adeline is three, Will is two, and Hazel is nine months old. We actually live about 30 miles south of Fargo. Out in the country, I like to think of as the Shire. I am a, I'm a part of the care team, and today I'm humbled that I get to bring to you God's word, so let's go to it. Uh, the strike team will be bringing down uh, Bibles. If you guys need a Bible, that is our gift to you. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it so that we can search the scriptures to make sure that what I'm saying to you is true. Let's read Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is no ordinary love song you'd hear on the radio. This is a celestial love song. Leading up to this psalm, we've had four psalms that have contained hardships and trouble. To sum them up, we've had pleas like, Deliver me in Psalm 40. Be gracious to me in 41. Why are you cast down in 42? Vindicate me in 43 and help us in 44. And now here, a love song so wonderful, the writer's heart is overflowing with beautiful and good themes. There is no conflict here except pure joy, victory, and love. However, here's the issue. The bride is supposed to be pure. How are we to, how are we to be pure when our lives are tainted with sin? How can we enjoy the king's love for us if we sin. My hope this morning is that through the pain and trouble we all face day to day in our own lives, that we might come to this place of rest 
and enjoy this harmonious love song that portrays the wedding of a handsome king and a beautiful bride, we will see that this is talking about Jesus and his church. I want to invite you to come and delight in this royal wedding where we see King Jesus, the happiest and most beautiful being there is, and marvel at how he sees his bride, the church. I hope this message will remind us of how awesome God is and how incredible is his love and righteousness that he clothes us with. Before we jump into the text, some of you may be wondering, how is this psalm talking about Jesus? Well, before we go there, know that for an ancient Hebrew reading this, they did not know when this king would come, but they were longing for a true and better king who would save them. How amazing it is that Jesus has come in time and history. He has revealed himself to us and is now reigning from heaven. And we get to see that this king is Jesus of Nazareth. Many of the Psalms point to an earthly king like David, as well as pointing to Jesus. But in this Psalm, it's different. It's primarily pointing to a king who is God. Let's go to verses uh, 6 and 7. It reads, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. These verses are quoted in Hebrews where the writer says that these are referring to the Son, Jesus. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here it could not be clear that this psalm is referring to Jesus. And as we see in Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, Jesus will marry his bride, the church. So when we see the bride later in the psalm, envision the church. It's easy to miss, but when we see that this is about Jesus, we will start to see how profound and wonderful this psalm is. So as we work through the psalm, know that the king is Jesus and the bride is the church. So let's look at the intro. This song is according to lilies. Uh, the meaning is uncertain. But when we read about lilies elsewhere in Scripture, we see in Song of Solomon that Jesus is the rose of Sharon and a lily of the valley. And we also read about Solomon in Matthew where the lilies outshone even him. In Psalm 69, we also have a song according to lilies. It likely means that this is a beautiful tune. And what I'd like to do today is to take you guys on a step-by-step journey through this psalm. If you'd like to follow in your Bibles, I'll be going through this psalm verse by verse. But as an overview, uh, we'll see that in verse 1, um, as the wedding prelude. And then in uh, two, verses 2 to 8 are about the king. Verses 9 to 15 are about the bride. And then the psalm ends with a celebration in verses 16 and 17. Let's go to verse 1. So verse 1 opens with a writer who has a heart that is overflowing with delight. He can't help but address the song to the king. The writer here is not speaking out of haste, but eager worship. When was the last time your heart was overflowing with a good theme? When was it filled with a longing for something more, something beyond this world? I have to admit, it's very easy to go through the motions of doing all the right things during a Sunday service, but oftentimes my heart is not here. I can be very self-centered. Jesus said to the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus wants our heart, not just our right motions, Jesus wants our delight, not just our duty. So where 
is your heart today? Verse 2, it says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Charles Spurgeon, a well-known preacher uh, from the 19th century, who has an excellent commentary on the book of Psalms, was immensely helpful here. In Hebrew, the word is doubled. It says, beautiful, beautiful art thou. Here we see one of the most explicit verses about the beauty, uh, about Jesus' beauty in all of Scripture. We know that it says in Isaiah that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, but this was talking about Jesus' human, humanly physical beauty. Here in Psalm 45, we don't have a contradiction but a description of who Jesus is. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus is so emphatically lovely that words must be doubled, strained, yea, exhausted before he can be described. Among the children of men, many have through grace been lovely in character, yet each, that they have each had a flaw. But in Jesus, we behold every feature of a perfect character in harmonious proportion. He is lovely everywhere and from every point of view. There is none more beautiful than Jesus. And what was David's one desire? In Psalm 27, 4, we read of David saying, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David longed for the beauty of the Lord. Does our heart long for Christ's beauty? I would argue we all crave the beautiful, but the beautiful things we enjoy here are but reflections of the beauty of Jesus. He is the source and the essence of beauty. Jesus' beauty is the solution to our desires. To experience Christ's beauty, we behold him in his word and in the world. The word is like a bar of gold, and the world is like leaves of gold. The scriptures have the weightiness and the substance and the worth of the purest gold. And what a privilege that we get to see him here in his word. We see the beauty and majesty of King Jesus where no other being compares to him. There is none more beautiful than Jesus. The fantastical world that was made by Jesus is also filled with the glittering beauty of his glory. Every sunrise, every baby born, every mouth-watering meal, every diamond, every color and texture, every lovely song or poem or story, every sunset, every dewdrop covering grass or every refreshing breeze on a crisp early morning, every masterly crafted snowflake that enters Fargo, even when we don't want it, speaks his name. The word and the world proclaim his beauty and wonder. Do we see it? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Do we see it? Grace is poured upon the lips of this king. We read in John about officers overseeing his crucifixion, saying, quote, no one ever spoke like this man, end quote. He has the words of eternal life. His words are life, joy, full of grace, and satisfying he is the one where we ought to want to sit at his feet and immensely enjoy his words. In verse 3, we have a wonderful aspect, another wonderful aspect to our king. He is not some effeminate man. This is a manly man who has a sword on his thigh, a warrior king who fights for us, who loses none of his sheep, who slays the enemy dragon and gets the girl his bride. 
Revelation 19, 11 to 16 says this, as we read this morning. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Imagine Jesus with us, which he is through his Holy Spirit. When we encounter our foes and enemies, do you think we have a valid reason to be anxious? When man can only kill the body but not the soul? The warrior king preserves his sheep and says to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And nothing can separate us from his love. In verses 4 and 5, we see that Jesus is not only a warrior king, but a victorious one. This is a king who subdues his enemies, crushes them with a rod of iron, and his enemies become a footstool for his feet. He crushes the dragon's head, and none can stay his hand. His arrows are sharp, and the word of God is that which pricks the heart and subdues us to submit to him. Charles Spurgeon said again, one word from himself dissolved the heart of Saul of Tarsus and turned him into an apostle. Another word raised up John the divine when fainting in the Isle of Patmos. Oftentimes a sentence from his lips has turned our own midnight into morning, our winter into spring. Hebrews 4.12 it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. His word exposes our hearts, our minds, our intentions, and motives. The word that pierces us is the same word that heals us. It shows us our sin, but then shows us the abounding grace of God. His word conquers us and puts us into submission to him. As we get to verse 6, as I mentioned from the beginning, we see that this verse is quoted in Hebrews referring to the Son, Jesus. This is no earthly king. This is a God-man king. We see here that his throne is forever. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The church will continue to grow like leaven in a lump of bread or like mustard seed that grows into a tree. His kingdom is forever, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have much to marvel at here because we have no king that fails. This king is victorious and knows what he is doing because he is sovereign and rules in righteousness, and his scepter is righteousness itself. In verse 7, it says that this king loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Do you know that to love something is to hate something? For example, if I love justice, I hate injustice. If I love the giving of life, I hate the taking away of life. What do you love? Do you love what God loves and hate what God hates? Proverbs 8.13 says that the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Do you have a hatred of evil? We live in a culture right now that calls what is evil love. We kill unborn humans and call that love for mother when really it's harming the mother and killing the baby. Parents allow children to hate their flesh 
and mutilate it all while calling it self-love and self-care. We live in an upside-down world right now, and our king is calling us to reflect him since we are made in his image. What do we reflect? If we are swimming in triviality, endless scrolls, the next thing that never satisfies Do we look like Christ filled with joy, satisfaction, contentment, peace, light? No. But when we look to Jesus, beholding his glory, that is what changes us. We start to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Life becomes about resting in the love of Jesus and then overflowing in love to others. And we learn to enjoy the true, the good, and the beautiful. We take dominion of what God has given to us, bear fruit with it, and fill the earth with that which points to him. Let's move on. The text says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So there's a lot going on here. I think to an ancient Hebrew, there may have been some mystery here as God is anointing God, but what a privilege we have that since the king has come, we can see clearly that this is the Father anointing Jesus. We have God, the Son, whose God is the Father and is anointed with the oil of gladness Beyond his companions, the king is set apart and receives a joyous blessing. We also see here, that, see here that God has a delight in himself unlike any other. God is the happiest of all. Did you know that we get to worship a happy God? Our father said in the gospels when he anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is excellent news. Jesus is more happy than you can fathom. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the, of the throne of God, as Hebrews 12.2 says. And one of my favorite verses, Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Before we move on to the bride, in verse 8, we see that Jesus has fragrant robes. His robes are fragrant with myrrh, aloes, and cassia. He is pleasing to be around. Everything about Jesus is sweet, and the rich aroma is ravishing. We can also see that the music from stringed instruments makes him happy. And he doesn't come from one ivory palace. It's multiple palaces. His royalty is beyond majestic. And the king is covered with radiant glory. So we now have an amazing portrait of this king who moves hearts, is fairer than all, and is a victorious warrior who subdues his enemies. The king's word pierces hearts. His throne is forever. He loves righteousness, hates wickedness, is immensely happy, and is incredible to be around. Now we have the bride in verse 9. So we see that this is a royal wedding. Daughters of kings are among the ladies of honor. When we think about the people attending this wedding, think about the millions and millions of people Jesus has had an impact on. Men and women who have devoted their lives to following him. Hebrews 11 talks about how the world was not worthy of these saints. Men, women, and children who have died for the sake of Jesus are to be honored. The congregation attending this wedding will contain people from every tribe, tongue, and language. And it will be such a joyous event. And there at the king's right hand is the queen clothed in the finest of gold, the gold of Ophir. Ophir was a, is a place that was known for its gold, uh, which was natural, pure, and rare to be found. 
and it was costly and highly valued gold. So we have the queen who is dazzling with garments of the most luxurious gold, and this is the best gold there is, and she is a wonder to, be, to behold. So continuing on in verse 10, now it might be odd to, to read that it says to forget your people and your father's house, but what happens in marriage? Genesis 1 reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When we are united to Christ, we must forsake all others. Jesus gets our allegiance, our loyalty, and our love. Jesus says in Luke 14, that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying that we actually hate our family, but that our love for Jesus should not compare to our love uh, for love for Jesus. And we will not enjoy the full manifestation of Jesus' love if we do not forsake all others. In verse 11, we see that the king desires the beauty of his bride. Jesus died for a beautiful wife. Do you know how God sees his children? Do you know how Jesus sees his church? In Song of Solomon 4, it says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And then later, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Do you know how much life would be different if we believed this? What do we see when we look at the church? What does the world see? It sees flaws, sins, ugliness. But should that matter? How does Jesus see you? If we could grasp this and bask in the delight of Jesus that he has for his church, that he sees a spotless, flawless, beautiful bride, oh, how life would change. How often are we trying to cover up our sin, cover up our flaws, cover up the things we don't like? How often are we trying to work our way back to God when the price has already been paid? We don't have to work for God's justification. We don't have to work our way to him. He sheds his blood for us, taking our hideous sins upon himself, and then he wraps us in a glorious robe of righteousness without spot or or wrinkle. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west and says there is right now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How refreshing and life-giving is that? It's not about us. It's about a king who gives his life for his bride and purchases her with his blood. And she doesn't now have to pay back for what he did. She gets to continue to bask in the innumerable riches of his grace for all of eternity because God is love. And he continues to love. And his love enables us to make much of him. Now, this doesn't mean we are not responsible for our holiness. We strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who is at work in us. We strive for holiness and purity, but understand this, that Jesus is our holiness. He is our righteousness and sanctification. So we have a bride, clothed in gold, told to renounce all others, is beautiful, and now in verse 12, we see that the rich are here seeking the favor of the king and queen. Our culture likes to follow the rich and wealthy and famous, and we want things from them. Yet here we have the opposite. It's the rich who are attending and wanting things from the king and queen. So this is a wedding unlike any other, more glorious than any other. If we haven't seen it already, here's another reminder in verse 13. 
All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. The princess is all glorious. Not just glorious, all glorious. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this psalm, said, The glory of the saints falls not, not within the view of the carnal eye. As their life, so their glory is hidden with Christ in God. Neither can the natural man know it, for it is spiritually discerned. But those who do so discern it highly value it. The glory that the church has is a reflection of the glory of Jesus. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 25, uh, 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's the paradox. Jesus gives his life for us to sanctify us and present us holy. Yet at the same time, we strive for holiness, even though it's God at work in us. We will not see, experience, or enjoy Jesus' love for us if we are marred by worldliness. If we are swimming in lust, pornography, bitterness, envy, hate, pride, and self-centeredness, we will not enjoy Jesus. That pathway will lead to death and hell. We see Jesus when we are rest in the love of Christ, letting his word dwell in us richly. So even though we have the glorious holiness of Jesus because of his righteousness, we strive like the Apostle Paul and say, I worked harder than anyone, yet it was not I, but the grace of God. Continuing on in verse 14, we see the princess coming down the aisle, and Doug Wilson said in his book, uh, When the Man Comes Around, that all of church history is nothing but wedding prep. How many of you have had stressful wedding preparations? It seems like an eternity uh, when you are waiting, and the stress of planning everything is quite the task. And yet when you get to that point when your bride is walking down the aisle, man, is it worth it. You can't wait to get married, and the prep seems like nothing because you get to be with your spouse. Church history is full of trouble, hardships, suffering. Yet when we see King Jesus face-to-face, all of our afflictions will seem like nothing. Yes, they can feel so weighty, and heavy right now, but they will be light and momentary when we see his face and get to be united with him forever in eternity. So the princess is coming down the aisle, and her virgin companions are following behind her. Now this might be a bit confusing, uh, but in my study of this passage, I think that the virgins are at least in one sense a part of the church. They serve the church, but for the sake of imagery, they are referred to as virgin companions or maids of honor. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11:2, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In verse 15, when the maids of honor come down the aisle uh, with the princess, this is no dour, glum, or emotionless entrance. This is an entrance that is filled with joy and gladness. In the past, I used to photograph weddings. One of the things I noticed uh, when photographing the procession was the lack of emotions in many weddings. Or even when the first look of when the bride and groom see each other for the first time. It should be this joyous, wondrous event to photograph. But I can't tell you how many times, uh, how many weddings I've photographed, there was no joy. There was this weird feeling that it wasn't at all that important. It was quite, actually quite odd. However, however, I have witnessed couples who were followers of Jesus. And they would brim with joy when they saw each other. And when the bride came walking down the aisle. Those who know Christ 
know what love looks like. Those who don't know Jesus don't know love. Those weddings aside, there'll be nothing compared to the procession that the church will have when we will be married to King Jesus one day. A couple more verses. The end we see that in the place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. Sons of the bridegroom, um, sons of the bride and groom become kings. The church is fruitful by making disciples, and the disciples get to become one with Jesus, united to him. Many sons are brought to glory, as Hebrews 2.10 says. We are called as a church to be fruitful, have dominion, fill the earth, and subdue it. Many of us will be fruitful with children, and we are to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Others will be fruitful with making disciples with those around you. And we are to fill this earth with image bearers who reflect God. What does this look like? Well, for starters, we can't do this without the Holy Spirit's help. We depend on him. We look to Christ, expect God to work. We model to our children what it looks like to obey Jesus. We pursue the lost, feed the hungry, fight abortion, care for the sick, take in the orphan and widow. When you do it for the least of these, you are doing it for Jesus. Listen to the king, and then we proclaim to those around us that our God reigns. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord, Lord of lords. Last of all, in this psalm, we see that the name of Jesus is, is remembered in all generations. The psalm opens with the writer's heart longing to praise the king and praises the king and then invites all the nations to join in the praise of King Jesus. In Psalm 86, 9, it says, All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. And Paul writes in Romans 1, 5 that, through whom, through him, whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then later in chapter 14, 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So we have the king in all of his glory, the bride in all of her beauty, the joyful entrance and a declaration that the nations will praise King Jesus forever and ever. I want to end this message from a little passage in Luke 12, 35 to 37. In Luke 12, there are thousands of people gathered around to hear Jesus. And then Jesus addresses his disciples with this parable. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that you may, be, that, so that you may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. John Piper, from a chapter in his book, The Dawning of an Indestructible Joy, was really helpful to me with this concept. Forget this. The wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus comes and serves us. This King of Kings is a humble servant who comes and serves us. What God does that? There is no other religion that is like this. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus came to serve and give his life. He does not need our service. John Piper says this, Our God is so full, so self-sufficient, and so overflowing in power and life and joy that he glorifies himself by serving us. What a wonderful day 
that will, that will be when we see Jesus face to face, when glorious King Jesus will come and marry us, his people, his bride, spotless, clean, pure. And we will be with him forever, gazing upon him with eternal joy and endless happiness. He will serve us and love us as we marvel at his grace for all of eternity, being satisfied with our God and King Jesus. One night before bed, as I was talking to my three-year-old daughter, Adeline, I mentioned that one day Jesus will come back and be with us forever. She looked at me wide-eyed and said, Daddy, when I see him, can I give him a big hug? (laughs) Absolutely, Adeline. And what a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Father, we long for your return. And we want to see you in your glory and your beauty. Father, satisfy us today with your love, your steadfast love that is better than life, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Show us Christ. May our hearts, cause our hearts to overflow with a pleasing and good theme today that would just overflow in worship and in delight in our King Jesus. Show us your beauty. Satisfy us, God, with yourself. We need you. We love you. Amen.